Hey, Jay, who was the first mutant? On 616, Miles? Ooh, these days, I think it was probably Apocalypse. I could have sworn it was Namor. You're not wrong. It was Namor, but nothing can defeat the power of retcons. Ah, fair point. Of course, if you jump to Earth-1610, then Wolverine is the first mutant. Ultimate Wolverine has been around since ancient Egypt? Man, I knew he was old, but that's, like, extra old. No, no, no. In the Ultimate Universe, mutants have only really been around since a bit after World War II. They're the result of experiments performed by the Weapon X Project, which Logan got rooted into at the same time Nick Fury was sent to Project Rebirth. Wait, Nick Fury was Captain America? Nah, he was just part of Project Rebirth. Anyway, he and Wolverine and a third dude were pals in the war, and they got sent to their respective super soldier programs after being caught looting. Huh. Well, what happened to the third dude? Eh, as far as I know, he just went back home. Well, that's anticlimactic. And became the Kingpin's grandfather. What?! Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 265 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to X-Men. I mean, we always talk about X-Men, but like, the comic book that is specifically called X-Men. Not only that, but the comic book X-Men that is about the team X-Men. This gets very confusing, uh, but yes. Well, there's the comic book Uncanny X-Men, which is also about the team X-Men, and then there are all the other ones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thanks, Marvel. Thankfully, it's only gotten much more straightforward and simple here in 2019. Actually, here in 2019, it's not too bad, but man, the last number of years. Oh, dude, there's a listener question that's been sitting in our inbox for a few weeks just because I can't bring myself to put it on the show, which is, do you guys know what's up with the X-Men right now? <laughs> I mean, well, let, we'll start at the beginning. You should listen to our first episode, and we'll go from there. I was going to say the answer is basically just Hickman. Hickman. Yeah, basically Hickman. Um, I'm freaking loving it. But we are not here to talk about Jonathan Hickman's current run. We are still back in the early to mid-90s, so maybe we'd better start with previously on X-Men. Professor Xavier, in addition to his general lack of ethics and um, ongoing dubious life choices, has had consistently lousy romantic luck with human women and mutant women and Magneto. So maybe it's no surprise that his first truly successful relationship was with an alien, namely Magistrix Lalandra Naramani of the Shi'ar Empire. Their courtship took place entirely psychically in what Professor Xavier mistook for severe nightmares. You know, love. Professor X spent a while getting space busy as Lalandra's royal consort, but eventually his duties called him back to the X-Men on Earth and hers kept her on the Imperial throne. They've probably been sexting a lot. Yeah, but like, she are sexting. So it's really advanced and probably has a lot of curvy lines and bright colors. Feathers everywhere. Oh man, that sounds tickly. Now, space is probably the place to be right now because things on Earth are getting pretty rough for mutants. The Legacy Virus, that's the Marvel Universe's mutant-targeting allegory for AIDS, has been spreading further and further and actually has just made a jump to the human population. The X-Men have been doing their own research, but so has genetics-obsessed glampire Mr. Sinister. 
along with his brand new lab assistant, Threnity, who has the mutant power to track and absorb the energy signatures of mutants infected with the legacy virus as they die. Meanwhile, Cyclops and Jean Grey have missed a bunch of this because they've been on their honeymoon. Of course, this is Scott Summers and Jean Grey we're talking about, so when we say on their honeymoon, what we actually mean is dragged from their honeymoon psychically into the far future by their alternate universe and now very old daughter Rachel in order to spend 12 years raising Cyclops' son with Jean's clone Madeline Pryor from this universe. Very succinctly summed up. I'm impressed, Jay. I'm an expert. You are. Uh, We, of course, covered that last bit in our winter special about the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix miniseries. If you haven't listened to it, I think you should. I really like that episode. I also recommend reading it. It's not going to be critical to understanding any of the stuff in this episode or most of the upcoming stuff, but it's also just a really good miniseries. So we said we were talking about the comic book called X-Men, and that's partially true. We are, but we're also going to cover an issue of X-Men Unlimited. Those are the prestige format, double-sized, mostly standalone stories that were coming out every quarter around this time, and actually for quite a few years going forward. This is X-Men Unlimited number five, Hard Promises. Yeah, less set, less standalone than I remembered them being when we first went back to them. Like, there's a lot that intersects. I'm thinking especially the the Rogue and Nightcrawler stuff, the Sabretooth story. Well, don't worry. Future issues of this series will mostly have nothing to do with anything. But I really like this one. Yay! And this one's written by John Francis Moore, penciled by Liam Sharp, inked by Kevin Conrad, Steve Montcuse, Robin Riggs, and Matthew Ryan, and colored by Marie Javins. Now, you may remember John Francis Moore's name from the episode we did on the X-Men Phoenix miniseries, also known as Ascani Rising. Moore will be back later for an X-Factor run and an X-Force run, and he's writing X-Men 2099 at the same time as all of this is going on. We should probably cover that eventually. We probably should. There's, there's a lot of it. Maybe we could do like a Secret Wars thing and do way too many issues in one week. That sounds like so much work. There's, lots, there's just a lot of X-Men in general. Sure are. Somebody should start a podcast. I mean, like, another podcast. Oh, man. This is this is going to start to get meta and meta There are There are, like, a dozen, at least a dozen X-Men comics-focused podcasts out there. There are. Well, if anybody wants their 2099 fix for now, I know that Austin Gorton of The Real Gentleman of Leisure does uh, reviews of X-Men 2099 uh, for his patrons, so you can check that out. But we're not talking about 2099 at all. We're talking about X-Men Unlimited. And the artist, Liam Sharp, he did a lot of stuff, including, among other random Marvel stuff, an Amanda Sefton miniseries in 2000, and also a comic that he did that Glenn Danzig wrote in 1996, so that's a thing. What Marvel comic did Glenn Danzig write? Oh, that one wasn't Marvel. I don't think Marvel would let Glenn Danzig get anywhere near their characters. I mean, there was a lot of talk about casting him as Wolverine, wasn't there? There totally was, and, I mean, he certainly would have the look, but... He's a weird dude. I don't know how that would have worked out. My entire context for him, aside from the Henry and Glenn Forever and Ever comic, is that there was a picture of him buying kitty litter that was going around on the internet once, and I noticed that he bought the same brand of kitty litter that we did. Oh, well, uh, good taste in kitty litter, I guess. I guess. Anyway, Sharp has a really interesting style. It's this sort of sexy, earthy, very body-focused art. And I think it really fits this story. And he also draws one of the other stories we'll be talking about today. We'll get to that and how well that does or doesn't fit as well. So what's bizarre is that I like Sharp on this. I think he's generally a really good artist on this one. I hate him on X-Men 35. And I suspect that that might be a byproduct of inkers because he's got different inkers on these. And the, the textures and the detailing out in them is, are 
are different enough that I think that 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 might be a big component. But man, um, the quality difference between just those two issues is pretty significant. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. And I also just think his art style fits this issue especially well. And we'll get to why, but I think it's it's thematically appropriate to have an artist like this. But we're not just here to talk about art, we're here to talk about story as well. Let's dive into that as a sleepless storm forge Professor Xavier and Jubilee are awakened. Well, okay, they were already awakened because they were sleepless, like I just said. But they would have been woken up even if they had been asleep because a Shi'ar emissary just shows up out of fucking nowhere. On Empress Lalandra's orders, he is taking them all to Shi'ar space, to the Kree homeworld Hala, right now. And this is technically an invitation, but it's the kind of invitation that's basically an order from someone who's the empress of a massive space empire with really significant firepower. And the context of this isn't just a friendly visit. The Shi'ar Empire has just annexed Tala. But before we get to any of that boring political stuff, let's talk fashion. Because holy crap, Jay, this emissary's outfit is phenomenal. How would you even describe it? Rococo Strife. You know, you're, you're not wrong, because it's like Strife's armor. It's all metal and blades and head stuff. But with Apocalypse's random tubes and wires sticking out, and like a blue version of Doctor Strange's cape, and there are skulls and spiders and swords and knives and fish scales everywhere, like, I have to just imagine the dialogue at home, like, Mrs. Shi'ar, I've got a big meeting coming up. Is, is this outfit too much? Too much, Mr. Shi'ar? What does that even mean? It's Shi'ar space and no one knows. It's a lot of look. There, there are a lot of looks in this that are a lot of look. And on one hand, I kind of love the aesthetics of them. On several other hands, because, you know, this is, this is space alien stuff anyway. I feel like I can have as many hands as I want here. Shi'ar fashion looks just singularly uncomfortable. It's, it's like the least friendly aspect of Alexander McQueen and H.R. Geiger had a fashion baby. And um, also, finally, I kind of feel like the entire Shi'ar population must perpetually have yeast infections. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. There's some um, unfortunate crotch issues going on with some of these outfits. All of those bodysuits are at least like three inches shorter than the bodies they are on. Ugh, yikes. That does sound uncomfortable. And they're made of, like, metal and plastic. Meh, it's Shi'ar technology. Maybe it's super soft. But what does look super soft is what all of our heroes are wearing, because it's the middle of the night. They're all in their PJs. And do you remember that issue of Excalibur, Jay? It was a fill-in issue, and at the end, everyone was in these, like, super revealing pajamas for one awkward panel. It's like that, but drawn really, really well. So... Like, Storm is wearing tights and a shirt that's basically open to her navel. Forge is just wearing his favorite tiny shorts. Uh, and Xavier just has a blanket over his legs and no shirt. And Liam Sharp draws everyone incredibly buff and muscular. So he's like this mostly naked bodybuilder in, in a wheelchair. Oh, I assume that he's totally naked, save for the blanket. Well, right. But I mean, the blanket is what makes it only mostly naked. Ah, I see. And, and Jubilee is, is, is in a, just what looks like just a longish t-shirt. And this is one of those things where I think Sharp handles it really well because it's something that could very easily have become really creepy. And Miles, I know you, you thought it was, it, it crossed that line a little bit. I really didn't. I thought I, as, as someone who used to sleep in a t-shirt and occasionally, you know, 
found myself needing to like run and open the door. This is, this is pretty realistic. Like the moment of, oh shit, this is not as long as I thought it was now that I have to deal with other people. That happens in real life. Well, and that's the panel that I specifically objected to because at one point she's sort of pulling the shirt down to cover more of herself and that pulls it off of one of her shoulders. And it just struck me as a panel that was kind of too titillating to be focusing on a 13 or 14 year old girl, especially one that's consistently portrayed as being as emotionally young as Jubilee is. Yeah, um, to get to to again and perpetually paraphrase community, Jubilee's pretty young. We try not to sexualize her. Yeah, but I do I do agree with you, Jay, that this could be a hell of a lot worse. I think it could be better. I think it could be worse. And overall, I think Liam Sharp's extremely sexy style is fine. I think he does sexy well, and it's a superhero comic, so you can totally have that. Like, I don't think that's inherently a bad thing by any means. Again, I think it varies. One of the things that I appreciate, and this is an oddly specific thing to appreciate, and I feel like I'm going to be veering into weird territory talking about this in ways that it wouldn't have been weird, you know, four years ago for me to bring up, but um, I really appreciate the way he draws Storm's breasts. Tell me more about that. Okay, so it's not an OMG sex you thing. It's the fact that they actually seem to have physical mass. Like, because that's the thing. The way comics artists tend to draw breasts, you can see this, in fact, with Sharp's pencils in X-Men 35. It's just god-awful. Is basically as weird, enormous helium things attached to people's collarbones. Like, they're in shapes and anatomical configurations that just, that breasts don't. And fabric interacts with them in ways that, again, does not happen. And... Something that is, is you know, a perennial challenge in comics is, is, is in general, the sense of mass and impact. But especially with, with people's bodies and with parts of people's bodies that aren't super muscled and with, again, the way breasts exist and move. And plausible breasts, and especially, especially plausible larger breasts, just really don't show up in superhero comics, especially in the 90s. And these kind of are. Like, the fabric interaction is a little weird, but they they sit and are shaped and interact with the rest of Storm's body in ways that are fairly accurate to, you know, to the way they would in real life. And that's rare enough that it kind of stands out to me. So well-breasted Liam Sharp. Now, for now, it's not just Storm's breasts that are relevant to this story because a very sexy holographic Empress Lalandra shows up and explains our heroes are being brought in for the ceremony to join the newly conquered Kree species to the Shi'ar Empire, because this story takes place in the aftermath of an Avengers crossover called Operation Galactic Storm, which was about a war between the Kree and the Shi'ar. Wow, that's that's a little bit on the nose in terms of, of contemporary events of the time. Right, because, you know, in real life, of course, we had Operation Desert Storm, like, right before this. Hey, Miles, I hear superhero comics have never been political or commented on the real world. No, no, it's just pure escapism. That's what I go to superhero comics for myself, don't you? Operation Galactic Storm ended with the Kree Supreme Intelligence blowing up the Kree to try to jumpstart their evolution, after which the Supreme Intelligence was killed by the Avengers. And then the Shi'ar, who were themselves manipulated into building the bomb that caused that explosion— took the Kree over now that the Kree homeworld was shattered and the Kree species was shattered. And that's where we are right now. The Kree are just survivors of this horrible, horrible destruction caused by their own leader. And the Shi'ar are kind of taking them in and kind of taking them over. Like, there are pluses and minuses here. Oh, they're taking them over. You don't 
assign Deathbird to administer a world if you're trying to make nice. Also, the Shi'ar are an empire. They are they are an imperial body. They take over and annex other nations and incorporate them into the Shi'ar empire. They're not peaceful, and they're not friendly, and they're not good neighbors. Well, and we certainly see an example of that as the main characters approach Kree space. The Shi'ar Armada, all of these spaceships of different colors and sizes, because remember, the Shi'ar Empire is a bunch of different alien races with a bunch of different origins. Uh, They're all there for security. And when Xavier and the other mutants arrive at the new Capitol building, it's this wonderful juxtaposition of this colorful techno-grandeur butted right up against the wreckage and rubble of Hala's destroyed cities. And I love Storm's take on this right here. I worry about governments that invest more time in symbols than in their people. Right. So everybody starts getting ready, and once the Shi'ar officials realize that Earth PJs are not, in fact, formal wear, it is outfit time. So let's talk about some Shi'ar fashion. I love, though, that the Shi'ar were just like, yeah, we thought that's just what you wore. Like, the Shi'ar have interacted with Earth people before, including some of these Earth people. They know that they don't just run around in tiny shorts. I feel like the Shi'ar are basically Lucille Bluth from Arrested Development. Like, yeah, they've seen this stuff before, but they don't care nearly enough to actually, like, encode or remember any of it. How much could a Cerebro cost? Ten (laughs) dollars? Right. So, yeah, we have capes, we have sigils, we have sashes, we have shades, we have spider webs, and everybody's outfits are very, very different. Like, we do see that multiplicity within every aspect of uh, Shi'ar culture, and, and that's cool. So, Storm's outfit barely covers anything. It's like this little blue capital Y that covers her breasts and her crotch and not much else, but, like, it's Storm. So, A, that's not much less than her original costume, honestly. And B, of course she rocks it, and of course she looks regal and amazing. Here's the thing. Her original costume did not come with it the inherent secondary knowledge of how she styles her pubic hair. This one does, which is kind of a lot. Uh, which is to say, a, a lot of Knowledge, not a lot of pubic hair. Well, we a lot can... of knowledge, because obvi- now obviously no one was drawn with pubic hair in 90s X-Men. It's true, and uh, n- now you know, gentle listeners. Um, Jubilee's outfit is really tight, and she rips the sleeves open because she feels constricted, but yeah, it's, it's actually fine. Like, honestly, the only part I object to is when Jubilee's in her nightshirt earlier. I think this part is totally okay. I mean, it's a superhero comic. People wear tight clothes. Whatevs. I see this is also part of my Shi'ar clothing is uncomfortable theory because it is like it clearly she mentions that it's cutting off feeling to her arms. So I assumed that that while it's tight, it just doesn't really stretch. I assumed it was actually perfectly comfortable, but Jubilee just wanted to be a rebel somehow. That's our Jubilee. So, Jay, you mentioned earlier that Deathbird was in charge of the Kree now, and that's true, and we learn that that's because Lalandra, Deathbird's sister, thought that a public job might make Deathbird less treacherous and terrible. Eh, yeah, maybe, maybe not. But Deathbird addresses the masses and is a super jerk about, yay, we conquered, you were awesome, but what I kept focusing on was her headpiece, which is worthy. Like, this would have fit the Hell's Haberdashery Award at the end of my old Thor episodes for my other podcast I did. Like, she has a headpiece as good as Carnilla the Norn Queen would wear, and that is fucking Whoa. saying something. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. It's a lot. Now, the y- you mentioned Lilandra put Deathbird in charge of Hala. 
as as a way to to mitigate Deathbird's threat by keeping her in the public eye. And this, I think, is the other than the the welcome. We didn't invite you, but come to this thing immediately in your underwear invitation. This is kind of, for me, the first really telling moment in terms of the fact that Lalandra and Xavier are not going to work out long term. Because Lalandra is clearly making tactical decisions and thinking in a large scale in terms of the Empire. And in doing so, she is entrusting an extremely vulnerable population to someone who she knows is basically just super murdery and terrible. Yeah. And knows what and knows will not only do a bad job, but will do a bad job in ways that involve very active repression and terrorization of of the indigenous population of Hala. Yeah, I mean Deathbird did play nice a little the last time the X-Men were in space, but that was more out of necessity than out of any kind of change of heart. Yeah, like if you need to keep her in the public eye, I don't know, give her a a talk show. Give her a reality TV show. Does reality? I guess reality TV must exist in the Marvel universe. Does it exist in space? Oh sure, no. It was it was the '90s, so MTV had their show, The Real Bird. She's not a real bird. Archangel is though. Anyway, Jubilee is really bored with this whole ceremony, so she wanders off and runs into a Cree teenage girl her age and strikes up a conversation before the girl is pulled away by a grizzled older man who basically says, don't talk to the Terrans. And this right here, I think, really does show just how much privilege Jubilee brings to this because she's all joking around and feeling safe and just being jovial and friendly while the Kree around her are just like shell-shocked and paranoid and terrified that anything that happens is going to get them even more screwed over. Yeah, and that's... To her credit and to to the, the credit of, of the, the creators on this, that's something the Jubilee realizes over the course of this, the, the extent to which she this is not her situation and she is not reading the room accurately or well. Totally. So as Lalandra takes over speaking at the assembled Cree and various Shi'ar and stuff, that aforementioned older man, the one that dragged the teenage girl away— shows up, pulls out a gun, and tries to assassinate Lalandra, blaming her for their suffering under Deathbird, which guys kind of got a point. I mean, I'm not saying assassinate people, but I'm saying that at least his logic is sound. Oh yeah, he's not wrong. He's just exploded because he is stopped and so blows himself and his surroundings up. And in the aftermath of this explosion, everybody just sort of chills in their quarters to recover storm and forge are pondering the parallels of their own relationship with that of xavier and lalandra i mean they don't have space separating them but they're on different teams and they have different responsibilities although arguably only one of them is terrible which they definitely have going for them over xavier and lalandra no that's true that's true storm's pretty excellent Jubilee has actually been thrown into the nursery because she our children are not considered people and so they're applying the same logic to her and I love that it's got all these giant stuffed animals in it. Like, that appears to be the entire contents of the room is enormous stuffed space aliens that are all furry and soft, and she looks so pissed off, and it's delightful. So, I tried to think about that and, like, what that means about how she our childhoods go, and I... I got nothing. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those things that works better as a gag than attempting to follow into any sort of logic. So Jubilee says fuck this and wanders off again to see if she can find some Cree nightlife, and she runs into the girl she met before, who we learn is named Shimmer. I think that's how you say it. It's S-H-Y-M apostrophe R? I don't know. 
ah, Shimmer's good enough. We can go with that. And it's 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 a good counterpart to Jubilee in terms of, of Jubilee's powers. It's, it's a very much, clearly they were meant to be friends. Mm-hmm. But the girl's not in a great mood because that assassin who blew himself up, yeah, that was, that was her brother. And Jubilee is like super compassionate here because Jubilee is a good person. She's just kind of a dumbass a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, she's a teenager. She's a super sweet kid. She's really, really, she's, she's kind. She's just a lot. Mm -hmm. So Shimmer brings her new friend Jubilee back to the Resistance headquarters, because of course there's a Kree Resistance trying to take their planet back from the Shi'ar, and they interrupt a meeting in which the Resistance is talking about blowing up the Stargate near Hala to kick the Kree out. They figure, what do they have to lose at this point? It's not like things can get much worse, which, oh god, yeah, their lives really suck right now. On one hand, I like Shimmer. On the other hand, Shimmer, this is bad revolutionary tactics. Even if your new friend is clearly the protagonist of the book you're in, don't bring them to the revolution headquarters within 10 minutes of meeting them. And it almost goes really bad as Vsog and Dantella, two of the Kree warriors, are about to murder Jubilee, but she's saved by Malachi, the leader of the Resistance, who is about 10 feet tall and has a robot arm and a bunch of scars and is very serious. I like Liam Sharp's art, but I don't think Kree warriors are supposed to be literally 10 feet tall. I like him. I bet he gives good hugs. He probably does give good hugs. I bet he's very gentle when he's not, you know, murdering people. And Jubilee, I think, realizes the gravity of the situation at this point, and uh, the writer gets her voice perfectly. Okay, you can do this. Be calm, be direct, be sincere, and go easy on the wisecracks. This is the story of Jubilee learning to face the real world in a lot of ways. So... Back in, you know, Shi'ar fancy town, Xavier and Lalandra are doing their best to reconnect, but they're holo interrupted, uh, coitus holo interruptus, uh, because Jubilee has been caught violating curfew by the bird cops. And Xavier takes her off to scold her, partially because she was doing something unsafe and partially, I'm assuming, because he was about to get it on with a bird queen. Come on! I don't think he says that to her. That's probably not the kind of thing you mention to your teenage students. Although I guess Charles Xavier might, because he's he really doesn't have a scale of age appropriateness. But I hope he doesn't. Well, I don't think he does, but I'm pretty sure he's thinking it. But Jubilee just wanted to get Xavier alone so she could talk to him and say, hey, I met the Resistance, and Professor Xavier, I think they'd be willing to talk to someone like you if you were willing to listen. I think we can maybe fix this situation. What do you say? And he says... Well, I guess I'm not getting laid this visit after all. But I really love the panel that is essentially what you just said. Like, there's Lalandra in the background calling to Xavier to come back because they only have a little bit more time before dawn. And she's all grace and soft lines and longing in the background. And she's also got this, like, diaphanous scarf thing around her over her bathing suit that she's wearing for some reason. And I gotta say, uh, Liam Sharp draws diaphanous fabric exceptionally well. That's one of his specialties for whatever reason. It's a skill. But in the foreground, we see Xavier, and he's all shadowed and craggy, just thinking about his responsibilities. Like, it does get across that whole different world, star-crossed lovers kind of deal, just that stark juxtaposition between the two of them. She was diaphanous. He was craggy. Could their love survive? I love Romeo and Juliet, how the diaphanouses and the cragginesses get in that big fight, and then everybody dies. That, that's not what happens. Well, pretty much what happens. So 
everybody goes to the marketplace of what's left of the Cree city, and that includes Lalandra because she's like, hey, I'm not going to put my friends and my people in danger that I'm not willing to put myself into. They're all in disguise as peasants. And, and their disguises are all hooded cloaks, tight tops, and like tiny panties. All of them. Because that's what Shi'ar wear on Hala. No, that's what Cree wear on Hala, because they can be blue-skinned or they can be sort of generically Caucasian-looking, and that's uh, what the heroes are trying to blend in with. So, Lalandra's horrified by a lot of what she sees, of course, because the Shi'ar guards are being all shitty and beating up children and that sort of thing. And Shimmer takes them all to the meetup with the Resistance leader at the Temple of Scientific Revelation and... I mean, the Kree are a really messed up species in the Marvel Universe, but I love a lot of their stuff. Oh yeah, so Kree religion is fascinating and weird and amazingly, like, acidic meta-commentary on religion in general. Oh yeah, it's it's fun. And so Malachi and Lalandra, who reveals herself, Parley, they're both cautious but respectful, and it's actually really great, and there's just so much hope that starts to build and build in this part of the story. I especially like this exchange between the two of them as Malachi jumps in. Out of the question. A self-governing Cree legislature is a necessity. Before discussing representation, you will have to acknowledge the Imperium. Assuming we have evidence that the Imperium negotiates in good faith. They're both being hard asses, but they're also both actually listening. And, I mean, nothing ever goes right in comics, X-Men especially, but God, with this part, you really believe it's going to. Uh, I mean, you do? Well, I did, but I'm an optimist. Visog and Dantella, the people who tried to kill Jubilee before, are not optimists. They are disgusted by all of this, and they wander off. Jubilee and Shimmer, being bored teenagers, follow them and are immediately knocked out because Visog and Dantella are going to steal the Rebel spaceship and go blow up the Stargate, which, as Forge points out once he realizes what's going on, yeah, that could blow up, like, the whole freaking solar system if they do it. It's a little cutting off your nose to spite your face there. Yeah, blowing up your nose to spite your bird face. The heroes don't have a fancy spaceship, but they do use Forge's skills to uh, rebuild this ratty old tugboat, space tugboat, and give chase. And I love this. I love that Lalandra is the pilot here because she was a fucking star jammer, remember? She was a space pirate before she was Empress. Well, okay, after she was Empress and then before she was Empress again, technically. Well, that and the Shi'ar, as she points out, have a super, super military education system. Like, she learned this stuff growing up. I like the space pirate part better. Oh, same. And Malachi's impressed. Again, they're sort of bonding. But things can't go well because Visog kills Dantella when she has second thoughts and sets both the autopilot and autodestruct on the ship and then kills himself. So the rebel ship is now a bomb heading straight for the Stargate. Now, you mentioned that Malachi and Lalandra are kind of connected. The character who Malachi really connects with is Forge, because they've got similar backgrounds. They're both veterans. They're both veterans who were were who, who lost limbs in in the line of duty, and they're both engineers. Malachi was an aerospace designer. So when they take a very dangerous spacewalk to go try to unfuck the about to blow up ship and save the Stargate, they really click they're talking about how hey we need to talk more about this later we need to like you know grab a drink together or whatever and indeed it works they're able to 
Well, okay, the ship still blows up, but like it blows up better, and the Stargate's fine. It's very complicated. Doesn't matter. The point it's is not that complicated. They're they're able to get the explosion to happen at a frequency that will stress, but not actually damage the Stargate. Yeah, which honestly, I like that it's kind of a complicated explanation rather than just we diffused it because you know super science. Well, and you still get a big, big, cool-looking explosion. That too. But as soon as they land, they're met by Deathbird, who demands that Lalandra arrest the rebels, and Lalandra does. What? Xavier objects. He's trying to convince her this is a terrible idea, and then changes tactics. I'm, I'm not talking to you as magistrix. It is who I am, above all else, and my duty is to the law of my people, a law that Malachi broke. Would you have me make an exception for him, Charles, and encourage other acts of terror? For the greater good of the Empire, beloved, sacrifices must be made. Yes, he will always be Magistrix first. And she cries, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of the situation. There's so much hope. Everybody's reconciling, and then this. It's just this reminder that human connection, individual connection and identity, that only goes so far when you have a war this fucked, when you have an empire this imperial. When you're dating a ruthless space dictator, which Charles Xavier is, and which is something that he hasn't really had to come to terms with in this way before. And I really appreciate that Lalandra is still sympathetic. In a lot of places in this issue, she's still absolutely a sympathetic character. But when push comes to shove, she does what she's supposed to do because she believes that's the only way for the Empire to survive. And that's an irreconcilable difference between her and Xavier, who, you know, I'm not saying his decisions are great at all, but they're coming from a very different place, whether they're good or bad decisions. Something that I think is important to understand about Lalandra, and something that's established fairly solidly as as she grows and progresses as a character and as the X-Men books progress, is that Lalandra is not exactly the good guy. She is a better option than Deken. She's a better option than Deathbird. But she's not good. She's not nice. She's not the, the emperor who's going to come bring peace to the warlike Shi'ar and stop their conquest. Yeah, I mean, she does her best to be the best Shi'ar Empress she can be, and conquest is kind of baked right in there when you get down to it. Yeah, it's their thing. So this is kind of it for Professor Xavier and Lalandra. They won't be officially split until Grant Morrison's run later, but, you know, it fits. They're both leaders before individuals, they're both symbols before people. And the fact that they can't be together geographically is a constant reminder of that fact. It's a rough, sad story, but I think it's a really good one. I think it's a good look at war, it's a good look at desperation, it's a good look at human connection, and it's a good look at when that connection isn't enough. I didn't like this issue very much when I was a kid. I think I missed a lot of those themes, and you know there weren't as many superhero weeps things going on as, as I wanted, but man, covering it now, I really enjoyed it. So I actually disagree with you about the distance factor. I think the distance factor is what's keeping them together before this, because it allows them the illusion of thinking that the distance is what's between them, not any fundamental differences. That's actually a really good analysis, and fair enough. And of course, that adds the question, even though it's not fully directly addressed here, well, what about Storm and Forge? And of course, we'll get to lots more about them in the future. I'm just going to go with it's complicated. 
What's a little less complicated, albeit still somewhat complicated, is X-Men number 34, Life and Consequences. Are you kidding? This this issue has a lot of clones in it, Miles. Well, right, but it's fucking X-Men. Of course there are clones. And those clones are written by Fabian Nasesa, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Matt Ryan, and colored by Digital Chameleon. And this, this issue picks up um, in the aftermath of a revelation that the X-Men got from Sabretooth, who is a somewhat willing prisoner in the X-Mansion right now, and that is that Mr. Sinister, who's been working on trying to find a cure for the legacy virus, or claims to be, has a lab, and that that lab is somewhere they can get to. As it turns out, specifically, that lab is still in the basement of Nebraska's state home for foundlings, which is kind of baffling, because you'd think he'd move it after Inferno. You'd think, because yeah, that, that's where we saw it. That's where we saw where Cyclops was quote-unquote raised, and where there's all sorts of crazy science stuff down there, and it's super scary, and it's a horror show, and I kind of want to play a video game set there. I would be scared, and I would wear a blanket and cuddle with whoever was near, because it would be creepy. Cat would sit on you and squawk real loud at it. Yeah, she's a good antidote to horror, it's true. Except when she comes into the room very stealthily and then squawks and everybody jumps. She's a good girl. So Gambit and Psylocke, who are telepathically linked to Beast and Rogue back in the Blackbird, are breaking into this state home for foundlings. Beast is the field leader, because remember, Xavier just gave him that job, because Xavier's off to Muir Island to help with the legacy virus, Cyclops is still on his future honeymoon, so Beast is the field leader for... This issue. This one issue. I mean, this issue does a pretty good job of both demonstrating why he got the job and demonstrating why it's probably not a great idea for him to hold on to it. So I feel okay about that. Now, in the meantime, Psylocke is pretty horrified by the place they're at. Um, she's specifically horrified that the kids grew up, quote, in such desolation, completely glossing over, you know, all the brainwashing and medical experimentation that was going on. Maybe she was about to get to that, but then got distracted. Now, Sabretooth has tipped them off that that Sinister's doing his legacy virus research here. And they don't really trust him, but as Psylocke points out, he hasn't really lied to them. He just tends to tell the truth in ways that'll cause the most dissent and problems. He also might be here with them, because as they're talking about him, we see a shadow pass in the foreground that looks an awful lot like Sabretooth. So they don't see this shadow, we just do, so they continue inside, bypassing a secret keypad and descending into what Beast calls the first ring of the Inferno. Presumably this makes the mindless nude riptide they encounter the righteous unbaptized. Oh, I mean, I don't know about the baptism part, he doesn't seem very righteous, but he is very nude. He really is. Uh, we don't realize that until after Gambit has knocked him out with a forged souped-up staff that now has a bayonet on it, which... Seems excessive, but sure. Um, also, he's nude. I know we already said that, but, like, he's really naked, and his skin is all flaky and patchy. Yeah, sinister, sinister. Moisturize your clones. Come on, like, base levels of responsibility, man. And you're right, Riptide is a clone, because, listeners, you may remember that Colossus killed Riptide way back in the Mutant Massacre ages ago, and here's another one. And, yeah, he's a clone, because as we've learned more and more as time has gone on, Sinister loves his clones. Rogue manages to arrive as backup just after the battle ends, and the the comedic timing is pretty good. I really appreciate that she just totally X-factors her way through a big wall of technology. Like, she wasn't on X-Factor. I was trying to think of who might have taught her. I think it was probably Iceman. 
I mean, I think it's the kind of thing you just pick up. Mm. But she comes in as, as Psylocke is, is examining the body and is, it just has just discovered that Riptide's projectiles are, are organic. He secretes perfect little throwing stars. And I thought Silver Samurai's mutant power was specific. This is very silly. I do like that Betsy is just coldly analyzing, like, this specific part of this guy's mutant power, despite all of the shock and horror going on around her. It's always good when writers remember that, yeah, uh, Betsy Braddock is a sort of cold, analytical person. Not because she's a bad person, but just because that's how she works. She's sometimes a little bit of a bad person. Yeah, okay. She's a complicated person. She is a morally flexible person. Um, so, anyway, they they they... they head out past the, the Riptide Room and head into what I guess is the second circle. Um, and this is this is the hell of Threnody and a whole bunch of unconscious people and people in TV monitors just floating around at odd angles. Hey, it's Threnody. She was that homeless woman who was having a real rough time because every time somebody died of the legacy virus, uh, she exploded. Right. She absorbs basically the energy of mutants dying from the legacy virus, builds up, eventually results in plasmic explosions because in the 90s, everything is plasma. She, of course, is working with Sinister voluntarily at this point uh, since her first appearance, the end of that issue. But she's pretty pissed also because our heroes, coming in the way they did, set off the Tesseract Chamber alarm and have triggered the internal defenses. A bunch of drones fly out and are about to zap them. Okay, I love this gag. This is a dramatic issue, and it's an interesting issue, but it's also a really, really funny issue. And Kubert and Asiza in combination have really great comedic timing and, and really good rhythm with that. And so you get the drones fly out, and then just sort of short out and kind of have little explosions and all fall down. And then there's a moment of everyone just sort of standing there looking confused, and Gambit says, Well, that was real unimpressive. Which is absolutely and unquestionably the title of his sex tape. You're not wrong. And it turns out, Beast, who takes this moment to show up, he was the one that did it. With science! Which is the title of his sex tape. Beast says... Why, I happened to them, my little Mississippi mauler. All one needed was a basic understanding of the causal relationship required of interactive reality planes, as they pertain, of course, to shared energy wavelength transmissions through a conductive spatial conduit. Or, in other words, boys and girls... I pulled the plug on him! Hoo-ha! Now doesn't this high-tech spelunking beat just hanging around the mansion all the time? Aw, oh, Henry, you're great. I had to do that with one breath. Well done. Thank you. Threnody's also doing pretty great, though, because Sinister stabilized the plasma, there it is again, build-up, and so she's gotten much better at handling her depression, which makes sense. I mean, she's no longer homeless, and she's no longer exploding all the time. Yeah, those things would make it really difficult. Threnody stabilized, but her speech bubbles sure aren't. There's still those wavy, warbly bubbles that look like they would come right out of a Sandman comic. I don't know, Jay, what do you think she sounds like? So remember those things that were basically big plastic tubes with springs in them? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, like that. Oh, all right. I just figured she sounded like, uh, I don't know, like a spooky ghost or something. Like, I'm Threnody, and I have a questionable fashion sense, and now I have electrodes on my face. I guess that's not even a spooky ghost, just so much as someone talking in a funny voice. I guess I, guess I just mean, I think she talks with a funny voice because of her funny speech bubbles. I don't have a better point. I mean, maybe her voice is a little bit shaky. Maybe there's some kind of interference from her powers. I don't, I don't know, man. I think she just thinks it looks cool. Plasma is the new magnetism. 
So the reason she's got electrodes on her head is that she is using her powers to scan for legacy-affected mutants so that she and Sinister can retrieve and help them. She's also used her equipment to tap into Sinister's entire data system, which I assume is like 90% his, his, his glam band outfit designs. Yeah, pretty much that. Also, apparently, um, the multidimensional Tesseract cha- chamber is how he keeps popping up everywhere, so yeah, sure. It's a wrinkle in time. Do you really think Sinister reads Madeline Olingle? I'm pretty sure he, I don't know, vivisected somebody who did, and so he learned everything about her books. Speaking of vivisection, and funny you should mention that, Threnody also shows them Sinister's pet project, which she refers to as his heart, and it is a room full of DNA. Like, it's just big, towering storage tentacles of DNA. Now, there are a lot of Marvel characters in here, which is about what you'd expect, but they're not all. There are also a fairly large number of real people, and those real people are including, but not limited, to U.S. presidents, some t- some scientists, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and Hitler. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's sinister. Gotta, gotta catch them all, I guess. So, I have to wonder, this is sort of this surreal nightmare of, like, tenderly technology, Does that fit Sinister, or do you think something more clinically standardly organized would make more sense for a personality like his? I think this lab is terribly organized. Well, right, that's what I'm saying. Like, would Sinister be more of a Cameron Hodge kind of personality, or is this sort of chaos and and madness more his style? I think the chaos is more his style. Sinister is all about flair, he's all about fashion, and he's all about really ineffectual sidekicks. We've watched Sinister over the years. He is not very good at what he does, and we know that. Like, he does not really accomplish very much over time. He, he mostly just sort of runs up the same trees, and then things that would have happened anyway happen. And so I absolutely, absolutely see him going style over substance here. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, he is at least somewhat organized, though, because it turns out all of his clones have buddies. All the cloning machines have room for two. And all of them automatically come out in pairs. So, you know, in addition to the the Riptide who they, they took out before, hey, it's partially skinless Sabretooth. Well, that's gross. Uh, but they beat him up because he's not, you know, done cooking yet. Yeah, Rogue basically takes him out with one punch. Beast doesn't really know what to do because on the one hand, horrible mad science stuff. On the other hand, horrible mad science stuff on the hand of Sinister. On the third hand... Horrible mad scientist stuff that could be really useful good science stuff. And on yet a fourth hand, the basic ethics of science, that, you know, data is valuable, and Hank McCoy has questionable ethics when it comes to working this stuff out. We've seen this before, and we've really seen it set off by the legacy virus, so he can't make up his mind, and finally Threnody just goes for it anyway, because Threnody makes better choices. So she blows it all up. And she says, hey, Sinister probably won't even notice. He's been gallivanting around so much. And she's going to be the X-Men's man on the inside. Mainly, she'll just show up later in the X-Men series. But, you know, for now. Threnody is cool. So one of the things I really like about this is the extent to which Threnody's relationship to Sinister is on her terms. Now, I should add ostensibly because it's Sinister, so you never really know how much actual mind control is involved. But she chose to go with him, and... Sinister is actually historically pretty good about keeping deals when it comes to apparently mutually beneficial situations, which this is definitely one of. And Threnody is also, in large part, been able to kind of take control of her life and claim agency in ways that she really couldn't before, which I really dig. 
Totally, yeah. But we should move on to X-Men number 35 for now, Sunset Grace. So this is written by Fabian Nasesa. It's penciled by Liam Sharp once again. It's inked by Robin Riggs and colored by Digital Chameleon. And because the inkers are the main variable between this and X-Men Unlimited number four, I'm going to go ahead and assume that what happens in this issue is largely Robin Riggs's fault. The art in this issue is um, a lot. And it's, it's definitely a lot that's accentuated by the fashion in this issue, which we'll get to in just a moment. So... After their adventures in the distant future, as enumerated in the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, Scott and Jean have woken up on the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier. Yeah, Nick Fury found him unconscious on the beach. And I guess also dressed them in very, very upsetting outfits. What? I love the costumes they're wearing here. They're wearing them on the cover, too. And I was so mad when I found out they weren't just new costumes for Scott and Jean. They're blue and orange spandex with random pointless patterns, and I love them. They're like if you took wetsuits and bondage gear and like crossed them in the least intuitive ways you could think of i like them okay i don't really like the fact that uh in some panels jean has a buccaneer boot around her uh around her calf and her other leg has just like a normal tights kind of thing going on that's weird but i like it the way jean's body is drawn in this issue is basically an ongoing catalog of everything that's wrong with the way that female characters are portrayed in superhero comics, both thematically and anatomically. Yeah, well, there is that. So, not a whole lot happens in this issue, but uh, what's the reason that Nick Fury has them, aside from the fact that he found them? Well, Fury needs help with a mutant whose powers have gone out of control and are now threatening the entire planet. This is a woman whom Scott and Jean recognize as soon as they see her as Sunset Grace, is the craftsperson who sells her wares on the beach where they'd been, you know, nominally hunting, honeymooning. And she has generated a massive, massive spatial rift. She specifically requested their help. She was able to get in touch with S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, because she recognized them on the beach as friends of Charles Xavier. And she's got some history with Xavier. I gotta say, though, Scott and Jean, before they agree to this mission, which of course they do, they're remarkably chill about being back in the present after 10 to 12 years in their own perception of being gone and of being in different bodies. Like, it comes up, but they adapt really well, and maybe that's just who they are. Yeah, I was gonna say, their lives are really, really weird. On the scale of, of, of rapid adjustments they've had to make, this is, this is not the worst. What's more surprising is how immediately and, and sanguinely they adjust to the fact that they were, you know, ripped mid-fight away from their 12-year-old kid. There is that, yeah. But I guess, I guess they do fundamentally know that he's going to be okay, or at least going to survive to become Cable. He's going to grow up big and strong, like real big and real strong. Um, I, I also want to note, and I, I just, I, these aren't really, really story pertinent, but um, there's a chair that, that Fury sits in that, that looks like it's, it's a lawn chair of some kind with a sign taped over that appears to be handwritten on, like, printer paper that, that just says, Fury's chair, keep off. Nick Fury, agent of curmudgeon. Does he just, like, obsessively label all his stuff? Later on, there's a Nick's mug. I think somebody gave him a label maker and then regretted it. Yeah, I've definitely been in that position. Not not giving someone a label maker, um, being the cause of someone's, someone's regret of gifting a label maker. <laughs> well, Jean pretty quickly gets pulled into Sunset Grace's reality rift, and Scott dives in after her because he's really sick of not being able to save people he loves, and also is not so great about self-preservation, but more the first, I think. 
Yeah, so their connection to Sunset Grace, by the way, isn't limited to the fact that she recognizes them as friends of Xavier's. They were kind of the catalyst for the whole situation. Um, she saw and felt them get yanked into the future and was so upset that it triggered her previously long dormant powers, which had been involuntarily suppressed for years. When Grace was a kid and a teenager, she had the mutant power to open up a rift to this sort of fantasy land that she called Never Neverland, but she lost track of that power as she got older and did adult stuff like getting married and having a kid. What's really remarkable about this is that based on the, the art on the page where this is summarized, she apparently married Ronald Reagan. Who apparently later in the flashback grew older and ended up looking like Forge does in X-Men Unlimited number 5. Like, he gets real long hair and a mustache and gets muscly. That's a strange transition. But at that point, he actually looks younger than he does in the wedding picture, at which point he looks like, you know, 70-something or 80-something-year-old Reagan. The art in this issue is very confusing. The art in this issue is very bad. So... We see Never Neverland, or, you know, the current version of it, and it's kind of cool looking. It's sort of generically witchy with weird physics and floating islands and little pentagram dream catcher things hanging but floating, you know, upward instead of downward. At the same time, though, I feel like this could be a great opportunity to have this, this dimension show a lot about who Sunset Grace is. You know, you can show her childhood, her trauma, her hopes, her dreams, but instead you just see generic fantasy stuff. I mean, maybe that's what they're telling us about her. Maybe she was just kind of generic. Maybe. Now, the last time that Grace was here was decades ago. She was in a really terrible car crash with her husband and son, and she shoved them through a portal into Never Neverland in an attempt to save them. And as she's telling these stories, as she's going through these flashbacks... I mean, I agree that the art isn't so hot in this issue, but the layouts and the design really are in some places. There's this wonderful full page of Grace in the background with this energy coming out of her hand that turns into the energy of a portal that a smaller version of her from the past is flying into. And she's holding up this kind of wizard staff, and that becomes the side of one of the panels. It becomes its border. It's really, really pretty in that regard. No, yeah. I mean, I think that's why I'm inclined to lay a lot of the issues in this issue at the anchor's feet rather than the pencilers. So after that whole thing where her husband and son died slash got sent into another dimension that she couldn't get into, she was real messed up. She was catatonic. And as often happens in the Marvel Universe, the people who were taking care of her knew who to call. The Ghostbusters? The Ghostbusters. And then when they couldn't help her, they called Charles Xavier. Right, because who else do you call when someone's catatonic? And... Charles couldn't help her get back into the fantasy land, but he at least did help her recover so she could lead a relatively normal life. Now, Jean manages to get her to a state of peace, to a point of control, by giving her a sort of fake vision of her husband and kid having happily continued to grow and live in, in this fantasy world. That's not real. And it's clear that it's not real, and it's explicitly discussed as not real later. It's something that Jean pretty much pulled out of Sunset Grace's own feelings. Um, her family is definitely actually dead. That part was kind of ambiguous to me. I, I almost got the impression that Grace herself, as Jean calmed Grace down, that she created those entities as part of the fantasy world. You know, that she used her own powers to alter reality within this little subdimension to just make reality into her son and husband who did survive apparently in you know this version of the world some of each i think 
either way, they definitely weren't the originals. They were explicitly the ones in in her memory and her feelings. Jean is very, very clear about that afterwards. It's really poignant and sad because Scott and Jean essentially are saying she's never going to be fully okay. The best we can give her is this happy fantasy, even if it's not real life. And they come away kind of uncertain on the ethics of, of that and of that final choice. And I like that there's not a neat resolution here. I like that this isn't an exact parallel, and I like that it's Scott and Jean being pulled from one impossible situation to another very different one, but both of which are ultimately very much built on the need for compassion. Yeah, yeah, that that works for me as well. There's not a lot to this issue, but it's sweet and it's concise. And I like that Scott and Jean get this little stopover on their way back to the X-Men. You know, you talked about their transition back to the present. And one of the things that I noticed in here is that they're very much their own unit. Like they're very detached from the people around them. They're communicating with each other almost entirely telepathically and almost continually. I don't know that they are adjusting as smoothly as you think they are. And in fact, that's something that they discuss in the pages and specifically that that comes up because Gene mentions that, you know, it's obviously really hard for Scott dealing with not being able to control his powers again after basically 12 years of actually being basically non-disabled in the ways that, that he ordinarily is. And he basically says, yeah, it's horrible, but there's not really time for that right now. We just kind of need to deal with stuff. Yeah. So I'm very interested to uh, to continue reading as, you know, they do reintegrate with the X-Men, because it's been ages since I've read the Phalanx Covenant stuff, which is what we're coming right up against. So, yeah, that'll be interesting to see. It really will. Um, I'm also very excited that they are never going to wear these costumes again. You leave my beautiful costume children alone, you brute. No. Aw. Well, you know who's not a bunch of brutes? Our listeners, for the most part. I don't know, maybe some of them are. But they've got questions. Compelled Infidel asks on Tumblr, While I like the character and concept, I feel that the execution of Evan Sabiner has been rather racist. From the visual whitewashing of his features to the cultural whitewashing of his white Midwestern upbringing, he's completely divorced from his race and heritage. Made all the worse since Apocalypse embodied the West's common portrayal of Egypt as the source of great evil. Is there an angle to this I'm not seeing that makes this less racist? First of all, you're absolutely right. Second, there could be such an angle. There is not yet. But it would require someone to write a story that involved confronting and dismantling that racism that you're describing and locating it specifically as Phantom X's. Because Phantom X was the one who stuck him in the world in the incredibly white-bred Kansas upbringing with the idea that that was somehow the most morally grounded place to put him. And which in itself is sort of an interesting commentary because Phantom X is someone whose world is largely constructed and is constructed out of, among other things, other people's prejudices as well as ultimately his own. He's someone who has this, you know, dramatic, very fake identity in life and an accent that's an entirely, entirely artificial thing and an entire persona that he's that he's built because it fits a certain purpose. And so I could very easily see him kind of leaping to that point based on a limited frame of reference. But on the other hand, he seems maybe a little bit too aware for that. I don't know. But the more you talk about this, the more I think that that could be a really cool storyline for somebody to do. I love Evan Sabiner, Kid Apocalypse, as a character. And this is something that hasn't been addressed. And I think it would be 
interesting both for the comic and for the character to do so. Yeah, I think it really needs to be. Aaron asks via email, if you could have any fictional character obtain the Phoenix Force for a story, who would it be? I feel like maybe we answered a question like this a while back, but it's a good question, and a lot has changed since then. So, Multiple Man would be hilarious. But A, the Phoenix Force would never choose Madrox because he's fucking Madrox, and B, I'm pretty sure he would destroy the universe like 12 times over, so it might have to be a what-if story. Honestly, Farron. I would kind of love to see an older Farron who had finally gotten over the whole thing and maybe patched things up with Excalibur finally get the Phoenix Force and like use it in really disciplined, deliberate ways because he'd spent his entire life training to do exactly that. I don't know if that would be much of a story. You'd probably have to have some other kind of conflict, but I think that would be nice. I think this is what I said last time this came up, and I, I, I maintain that both Cable and Madeline Pryor would be really interesting to see in that role. They really would, yeah. I think I'd love to see a story where a person who was never really anything special, or at least thought of themselves that way, bonds with the Phoenix Force. Maybe because of who they are, like who they are inside, maybe randomly, maybe because of reasons we don't understand, but the Phoenix Force does. Basically, I'd just love to see a normal person who had always felt like they didn't matter suddenly grapple with omnipotence and how to handle it. So, Iceman... That's the thing, though. Iceman is special by virtue of being a superhero. I just mean, like, uh, yeah. you know, somebody who worked as, like, a grocery store checkout clerk or, you know, a, a parking attendant or an accountant or something. Just someone who was as normal as you can be in the Marvel Universe. Can non-mutants host the Phoenix Force? It tends to be pretty directly drawn to mutants. I mean, it's comics. Anybody who the writer thinks should host the Phoenix Force can host the Phoenix Force. You know who I want to see as a Phoenix host? Who? I want to see Glob Herman as a Phoenix host, as the large, fiery, cosmic mother to chickens. I I love this plan. Ooh, or build a lobster. Maybe just give it to build a lobster and see what happens. Oh, that doesn't end well. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and some levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from a variety of fictional characters and concepts. Hey, look, it's the angry Claremontian narrator. <sighs> ah, Carrie Pruitt. Doomed to navigate a complex world of convoluted continuity and ethical bargains. Cursed with the understanding that no matter how nuanced your knowledge of the history from which you emerged... It's only a matter of time until another retcon pulls everything out from under you, and you turn out to have been Joelle Thomas all along. And with that, I believe we are handing the mic and possibly the hot pants over to Sexy Forge. I've survived the depths of wartime hell, and I've built the pinnacle of human perfection in my airy. But I've never seen a place like the Shi'ar Empire. I'd have expected technological and cultural achievements like nothing we have on Earth, but I wasn't expecting everyone to be so... sexy. Christopher McDougal, you were looking good before blasting off to the planet Hala, but now... Now your muscles have never looked so firm and taut, and your hair has never been so thick and flowing, and that half capelet and those skin-tight leggings... Wow. I couldn't build anything that beautiful. And Serial Lane. It was hard not to stare in admiration when I'd pass by you on my daily robo-constitutional outside Eagle Plaza, but I had no idea, no idea what space travel would add. 
You're just the right mix of earthy and idealized, of strong and sensual, and I don't know how that outfit even stays on. Even I couldn't build something like that. But it somehow knows exactly what to reveal and what to keep hidden. God damn, Lane. God damn. I'd love to stay and talk more. I'm sure Storm would understand. But this new space hair of mine requires way more maintenance than I'm used to. Time to build a techno comb from whatever scrap metal I can find and stock up on Shi'ar conditioner again. I think Cerise mentioned she had extra. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com, and hey, if you have a chance, uh, review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever. That would be great. On all the platforms. Next week, 90s fashion gets dangerous in X-Factor. As Malice returns to the jewelry racks. 